everyone. Welcome to episode 40 of Business Therapy, a show about helping real professionals solve real business problems. Every week, we invite a guest onto the show to help guide them through the normal pains and setbacks of working through their career. Using a mindfulness-first approach, we help our guests find conscious solutions and help give them the tools to take on challenges that inevitably pop up during the ups and downs of business. I'm Sam Drawshack, and as always, I'm here with Jonathan Adams. Today on the show, we have Nick King. Welcome, Nick. Good to be here. Why don't we start by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and how we can help you today? Definitely. So my name is Nick King, co-founder and CEO at Vint. At Vint, we are securitizing the wine and spirits industry. Um, launched about 15 months ago, um, raised some venture money and working to uh, scale the business right now. Um, and one one thing that we've been talking about quite a bit internally and um, trying to prepare for is a potential recession. Um, you know, it, this is a macro environment that for me, um, you know, I'm still a relatively young founder. I've never experienced um, a, a true recession um, and what that means in terms of the capital markets, in terms of, you know, a consumer investment, um, etc. So would love to just jam on that. That sounds great. The one thing I asked before we really dig in is for those uh, of our audience who are not as maybe familiar with, and I might already mess it up even trying to repeat it back to you, the wine or the alcohol or spirits back securities. Can you explain a little bit more about that business model just to orient us? Yeah, definitely. So wine as an asset class has a really um, long track record of strong returns and little correlation to traditional financial assets. So Cambridge actually ran a study dating back to 1900 showing wine had outpaced a lot of other um, alternative assets with about 8.5% annual returns. Um, however, uh, the only way to really invest in that asset class prior to Vint was to either do it yourself, so you'd have to set up your own cellar or storage units, um, or you could send some money to uh, a UK wine investment company, and then you would get a list of wines back three weeks later. We thought both of those were really inefficient, opaque, and um, largely inaccessible for most people. So um, we spent eight months with the SEC setting up a structure allowing anybody, both accredited and non-accredited investors, um, the ability to invest in wine and, and spirits in a really transparent efficient and accessible manner. So you think about like a, a case of DRC, um, a very famous wine could be $100,000. You will IPO that on our platform with say a thousand shares at $100 a share. Okay, awesome. Thanks for that. And I guess my next opening question would be, and how do you feel, like you mentioned some things about the downturn or, or possible recession impacting the capital markets and things like that. But do you have a little bit more context around how you believe it will impact you and Vint particularly right now and what's kind of top of mind in terms of your list of worries? Yeah, so um, there's there's a big one. Um, and, you know, you think about what happens during a recession is people are, are likely going to cut back on discretionary spend. Um, and one of my big concerns, you know, we're a B2C primarily um, focused company is that if consumers view Vint as 
discretionary spend where you know they'll they'll allocate um a few hundred dollars from um their their paycheck to uh investing in wine because it's fun like that would be a, a difficult position for us to be in like whereas if we can you know position this asset class as one that is for portfolio diversification not necessarily just fun then you know we should be able to ride out any volatility. And and why are you afraid that you won't be able to do that? Like, is there is there some history of analogous markets that have been uh, that, that where it has been hard to show the, the the benefit of the diversification? Yeah, that's a really good question. And one thing that I've been uh, saying recently is like, if you took wine and put it next to stocks, bonds, real estate, and you just blacked out the name of the asset class, you'd be like, this is a, a no-brainer to diversify into. Um, the lack of correlation, the um, overall returns, uh, it, it just makes sense um, in terms of making your portfolio. Um, however, there is this like just general bias of like, oh, like wine, is that really in, in investable assets? Like have people been doing that in the past? So it's this, this bias that we have to overcome as we're trying to create this new asset class. Um, in the past, uh, like alternative assets are certainly growing right now. But people didn't think about like sports cards or um, classic cars or e even art necessarily through the traditional lens of investment. But that is changing. And I think one thing that um, is is holding wine back a little bit is just like a series of, um, you know, uh, scams or just like fraud in the broader industry. So um, if you look back to say around well, we'll start with one of the bigger, um, more well-known um, instances of this, and that was um, Rudy Kurniawan. So this is an individual who um, faked a lot of wine that sold at auction. And there's actually a movie on Netflix about him um, called Sour Grapes. So one thing that people ask us about is, you know, fake wine, others um and included like wine funds failing in the 2010 to 2013 era so um basically in that time frame um the chinese market which was buying a lot of bordeaux kind of collapsed and you had these funds fail which you know inevitably in a business you're going to have certain businesses that that fail um but that is kind of there's two examples um and it has left a bit of a, a mark on the industry that we're trying to overcome. And, you know, the, there's really um, two ways that we think about that. And one is, is education where, hey, you know, here's why this is an investable asset class. Here's our entire sourcing process. Here's how we store. And then, and then second is just being incredibly transparent. We are the most transparent wine investment company in the world. We're the only one that works with the SEC, FINRA. Um, all of our information is public, but it's still something where, um, whether it's in venture pitches or pitching and talking with family offices, where you can tell almost immediately where they're like, oh, this doesn't really seem like an investable asset. 
yeah, it's fun, but um, we're, we're not trying to just <laughs> create a fun platform. We're trying to create a new asset class. Mm -hmm. I think the general idea of where you fall on the, the need versus discretionary spending a line, obviously that's a, that's a major line to be on during uh, an economic downturn. Um, but who is your customer? Like who, who is, who's, who's buying this? Is this like, what's their relative savvy and are they buying on behalf of other people or like who, who are you trying to attract? Yeah. So that has evolved over time. Our first cohort of users, um, say it was retail Rick, um, a more retail focused investor who micro invests on a bunch of different platforms. Um, that has actually seeded to um, Savvy Susie, um, who's um, around the age of 40, a more sophisticated investor, high earner, not necessarily rich yet. Um, and he or she drinks wine on the weekends, but is not, say, a wine connoisseur. Um, in addition to Susie, we have a smattering of hedgy heralds who are um, older professional, high net worth to ultra high net worth investors um, who really value the diversification and the trust, the fact that there is all this information on the SEC website that they can review. That's huge for them if they're looking to allocate six figures into this asset class. Love the persona and names. <laughs> so it's not so many middle people. These are the, 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 the people directly themselves, not brokers. Correct. Okay. And um, out of that group of individuals, is that how it's evolved? Or is that, are you targeting one group or another? That's how it's evolved. Uh, and that was uh, kind of a natural evolution that we were expecting where when we rolled out Vint um, in May of 2021, um, it was a true MVP. Um, and, you know, we weren't expecting to, go and target um, Harold's or, or Susie's right away. Um, or, you know, we're exploring the institutional side of things as well. But um, yeah, it, it has evolved. And with that, our positioning has changed. Um, we generated returns and return capital to investors, which was a big step um, in the right direction, returning capital at, at a 22% return in terms of financializing the asset class, it's always good to point to hard numbers in terms of um, real returns. It is out of the customers, is there one that is less expensive to acquire and buys more? Or like, obviously, as a startup, you're looking for all customers, but do you have a sense of whether there is a customer that's the bet most beneficial for the company? Yeah, um, Susie and Harold are um, definitely more beneficial. Um, granted, we want to make sure the platform is available um, for anybody to invest. Um, so, you know, when it comes to certain channel acquisition um, strategies, that's something we're still figuring out. We have um, a great um, director of biz dev who started three months ago, um, who's focused on that Herald and, and up channel and think that could be a really profitable investment there. So, um, 
still trying to figure some of that out. Mm -hmm. So on the, on the idea of being afraid then, so we talked a little bit more about the customers you're targeting, but it sounds like you guys are young enough in your journey where you are still figuring out and you're still out there and you're still touching the market, but you you're finding success. So I'd like to touch a little bit more on the fear or the anxiety you're feeling about a possible recession, because one could generalize that fear as a loss of revenue or a loss of customers, but you're talking about also it may be devaluing the asset itself or people would be shaken. I guess I'd like to know a little more from you about if we could hone in on what is the actual fear? Is it a combination of all of those things? Is it just particular dimensions? And I'd also like to bring the conversation a little bit more about how it impacts your mission or the value you're providing for customers. Because even the level we're talking about now is sort of at the surface of, well, I'm afraid to lose customers or I'm afraid of this or I'm afraid of that. But I think, you know, if you could explain a little bit more into that dimension, what is the fear? Where does it sit tangibly or physically, let's say? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And the, the mission one, I think, is, is interesting as well. Um, like for, for me, um, like it, it comes around growth goals. Like we have numbers that we need to hit as a business. Um, and, you know, I, I, in order for us to hit that, we need to get more customers to invest in increasing amounts. So I, that, I guess that would be the, if we were to drill down, um, that new customer acquisition, um, and, I think once once we get people in the door, like we see really positive uh, metrics in terms of reinvesting, but getting those people in the door when they might be like less, you know, when they might be, yeah, you know, fearful from the markets or less open to new investment um, concepts. You have to hit those numbers for your investors or for like, why do you have to hit those numbers? What do those numbers represent? Um. The numbers represent goals that uh, my co-founder Patrick and I have laid out for for this business as we, you know, track towards either future funding or um, default to live, um, i.e., like profitability. So um, those are the two. Um, I would guess I would say like north star. Um, things that the goals are based off of is future funding and then default alive. And to that point, if you weren't, if you failed to hit them, even if let's take the recession aside for a second, because I think it's an important point, whether the recession was in place or looming or already here or not, if you didn't hit those goals that you set for yourself, would you still be interested in the business? Would it mean that the business was a failure? Like how would you feel about it emotionally speaking? Um, I'm, I'm someone who is very persistent. So like us not hitting goals one time is not going to make, uh, make me quit. I'm going to go and then try and hit them again and again and again um, until we do hit them. So, you know, it's something, uh, you know, when we, we signed up to do a startup, we knew that it, there, there was going to be a ton of ups and downs. We're never going to hit every single goal that we um, set out to achieve, but um, like we we have to ride those out, those ups and downs, and um, that's one thing that I've been focused on is um, trying to moderate the ups and downs between fours and sixes as opposed to twos and eights, because um, 
you know, then, then you get on this wild roller coaster ride. And I think some of the issue is just getting back to that, uh, the goals you're setting, the more they're removed from an actual objective, other than what you're thinking, where there's a step to an objective, the more likely that a recession or something will reveal them as maybe generating additional activity that may or may not need to be done. So to get a little more specific, if your objective, like at the stage that you're in right now, is you need to secure X amount of funding on a regular basis, it may or may not be true that certain numbers are going to hit that funding. Like you, you don't know, maybe what's going to hit that funding is securing something additional with the SEC, or I don't know what else would make it more clear that you're being successful in the market or that it's a product market fit. So I would just suggest that maybe um, use the opportunity of the potential for recession or any crisis as an opportunity to be very specific about what your objective is. So like uh, Sam started with your purpose, like you're trying to bring bring a new asset to the market for them to be able to invest in. So, you know, what would be evidence of that? You know, like, and you, I appreciate you're saying, well, my goal of setting, you know, a certain number of people, but the goal is actually to bring this out to the market. Like, and whatever, in whatever stages it hits, you know, that that's acceptable. Um, so like, if, if it turns out that maybe it's better for you to have 10 mega, you know, investors, you know, rather than a thousand, like, in other words, like the, the numbers don't mean something unless it's how you're interpreting it to the an, an ultimate objective. So I, I just think that's a, it's an important distinction because if you compare, let's say a startup to like a, a much more mature company, the, the difference is that there are a lot more of those kind of objectives where people say, I want this, I want this, you know, and like now you have a whole class of activity that becomes divorced from something, an output that it's definitely going to achieve. I don't know about, I don't know if what I just said uh, made sense, but. No, no, that does make sense. And I think like a natural transition into sort of how those goals relate to like our mission and what is that and how um, the recession may help or, or hurt um, that mission. So um, that we, I'll tell you what our mission has started as. It started as democratization um, of this asset class, but then we realized that word is like one very buzzwordy in today's yes. day and age, um, but two, somewhat polarizing. Um, and for us, um, our our mission is to put wine and spirits into every portfolio, um, whether it is retail Rick, whether it is edgy Herald or institutional money, RIAs, IRAs. Um, we wanted to span the entire um, financial world when it comes to um, building your portfolio. Um, so like with that being said, there are some interesting trends, um, some that may be accelerated because of a recession and um, some that may um, slow down. Um, so the the common portfolio uh, used to be the 60-40 portfolio, 60% bonds, 60% uh, stocks, 40% bonds. Um, I think a potential recession 
may accelerate the change away from the 60-40 portfolio. KKR, a big financial firm, just came out with a piece um, saying they're recommending a 40-30-30 portfolio. So um, 40% stock, stocks, 30% bonds, 30% alternative assets. Um, and although wine is not yet considered one of their alternative assets, they're more focused on real estate, private equity, hedge funds, and private credit, um, we certainly could be. Um, and that is our job is to create the content, show the returns, um, and make sure people do consider this a um, financial asset. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line with recessions, people don't know where to put the money. In fact, the most, probably one of the most Googled questions right now is, should I just leave my money in cash? You know, So yeah. if you could show that yours over time you know, is, uh, is a better hedge, you know, I think that that's a, um, like it gives the opportunity. I'm still, I'm still a little focused on this, um, the idea of how you're, how you, how you can get it out there to everybody and, and who is the, you know, who, who is the perfect customer, um, out there only because it just strikes me that if brokers or anybody else, and maybe there's a benefit for them not to do this, but if there's any financial uh, advisors or any people that start recommending it, um, now you're, you know, that, that would be a way to scale. So I'm, I'm sure you've thought of that. And I'm sure there's challenges with it, but. Uh, well, and even, and, and even before you respond to that, I think there, to me, there's one more question. I, you're starting to articulate your mission as there is, you want to get it out there as an asset class. And there's a certain, with the way you talk about it, that as a respectable asset class and, you know, as a more standard and kind of institutionalized people's minds as a, um, as a safe, I guess, or as a good investment. But I guess the answer is why do you want that to be done? That unlocks the largest amount of, um, capital. So, um, Yes, there are a lot of people who like wine and might be interested in investing in wine because they like to drink it. Um, but that cap is um, much lower than those who like 8.5% uncorrelated returns. Or in our case, we've generated 22% returns on the assets. So um, if we're going to reach the most amount of people, it's going to be um, reach the most amount of people and then thereby build the biggest business here. We are going to do so by financializing the asset class. Right. Well, I guess, and that's where I want to, I want to interrogate it a little bit because as a consumer of your product or as part of your tribe or the market you're trying to build, I don't really care that much if your business is growing. I mean, I guess I do to some extent because your success is my success. If you guys are, are successful in your mission and I believe in what you're doing but it's not a very inspiring rallying flag is what I'm trying to articulate. So like, if you want to grow and you want to get more money in your business and you want to do all these things, like my, my question to you in terms of your mission is why, why is the consumer, is this something that's admirable or why would I want to be connected to you in this, in this pursuit? Is it so that you guys get bigger and make more money? Um, that's a good question. Uh, one thing that I, I will say is that we have a really strong, set of power users, um, people who love this product, they tune into every offering, they are um, really, really big fans of, of the product and a part of this community. Um, 
we've created this community really through being transparent, um, being accessible. Um, and like, you know, I think this is probably an overlooked thing, but our customer support is um, top notch. Uh, we're very quick. We build relationships with people. Um, so like, as I'm putting myself in the shoes of, of a customer, what makes me happy um, or like is um, like, this is an investment product. Like no matter like <laughs> how cool the wines are or this, like if there's a sense of community or excitement that people feel around the product at its core, they want to make money because this is an investment. And there are, um, I view a few different ways that <laughs> increase the ability for our users to, to make money. Um, so like you have the core asset class, um, which is governed by supply and demand. Um, supply is ever decreasing because people drink the wine. Demand is increasing as it ages. Um, there's a scarcity element as well. So like, let's say that's um, bucket number one of how this asset class generates returns. There's a second bucket that actually um, it offers a second way for investors to win. Um, say we have a secondary trading market, which is something that we've explored. If you have more capital coming in, then that's, uh, you know, as, as you have more capital inflowing into an asset class, that tends to drive the price up. So like in theory, the bigger that Vint gets, the better the product gets for our users, uh, i.e. there's a second way for them to win on this investment. Secondary trading can then become a, um, a more core part of the, the product. And then there's this sort of network effect that, that can happen. So um, that is uh, my, my long-winded answer of like, based on that uh, mission of getting bigger, um, how that actually helps benefit the marketplace. And, and, clear, and for sure it does. But if there was no Vint, what's the problem that will persist in the market? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, if people wanted to access wine as an asset class, it would be really transparent, opaque, and inefficient. Yeah, and and just and well, go ahead, Jonathan. I have more to say. On no, this. no, I'm, it's the same. I'm, I think I'm going on the same. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to go on the same path. So go. I think I think it's and the reason we're asking this line of questions, Nick, and it may seem like we're wandering away from kind of where's this the fear of the market recession, but the reason we're asking is because it sounds like, you know, beyond some of your technical explanations, you have a mission, you want to help people be financially successful is what I'm hearing. Would that be a stretch to say, like as a summary, that would be kind of what you're attempting to do? Yeah, that would, sure. Yeah. So, and it's not to try to put words in your mouth, but I'm, I'm, I'm using this as a straw man for you to think about, because the reason this is such an important topic is when, when people come onto the show or just talk to us about fear for their business because of external factors, a lot of that has to do with if your business goal or your mission is based on metrics that you want to hit from your perspective and they're not as customer centric, your business model is much more fragile and prone to get lost when you're navigating tougher uh, market circumstances and external pressure because those are largely arbitrary. You know, sustainable companies generally 
you have a mission that tends to be articulated from a customer-centric point of view because the customer's enjoyment or success of your product, that's going to be easier to maintain as a North Star, to steal a Jonathan word, you know, through tough markets, through the volatility of certain market events um, versus, you know, trying to, from an investor perspective or from an own operating perspective, map that out, which is why, you know, we're trying to dig in a little bit to this factor because I think it's really important for alignment in the sense that you and your partner, um, you know, when you get pressured and you're losing customers, you're losing revenue, you're losing this or that, a lot of that's going to relate back to the central question of what is it that you're trying to achieve? Are you just trying to achieve getting more capital so you can offer more products? Or are you trying to achieve an outcome for the customer that they can rally behind and be sustained even when the market may be going through a dip? And I think that I just wanted to give you a little bit more about where we're in, like why we're having this conversation at this point. No, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. So yeah, we, <clears throat> as, as part of what I was saying of like customer support and building these relationships, like we do go to our customers in particular when it comes to the product roadmap. Um, and, you know, a big feature that we rolled out last month um beginning of this month was distribution so a way for people to really seamlessly get their capital returned to them and then they can decide to reinvest and we had you know 10 to 20 um, product interviews with investors on our platform to um help build this this feature um i i would question i i understand what you're saying of like having your goals be customer centric. Um, I would also be hesitant to like go to our customers and ask them like what our goals for the business should be. Um, like for the product, that's one thing, but um, it's it's this, you know, with, with startups, everything seems to contradict it, itself. You can find um, counter examples to everything. But for us, um, I don't know, maybe I would turn that question to you. Like, do you view customers as a um, resource when it comes to goal setting? I think you have the customers saying what the problem is in the market that you are coming along to solve for them or the opportunity that you're giving. And then you could set objectives on how to get there. But you need that starting point of the customer. So for example, in this case, it could be that the there aren't enough opportunities for customers to invest in, uh, in the asset classes. There's not enough asset classes out there. And, uh, or that there's an amazing asset class that exists out there, but right now it's only accessible to very wealthy people. And you know, that's why the rich keep getting richer and you know, whatever. Like in other words, but you need that problem out there as you know, a star, because we're we're usually you go when you think about a recession is that it's simply that it's compressing time, although the recession is doing. So it's going to highlight any inefficiencies that exist, or it's going to highlight inability to compete, or you know that's why you see a lot of merger and acquisition activity suddenly. But you won't be able to see the opportunity that exists in it, and there's tons of opportunity in recession or any crisis. Um, and I and I love that uh, the uh, Ram Emanuel. I guess he he took it from. Uh, a professor at Stanford, but uh, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. You know, the former chief of staff for, for Bill Clinton. 
but you can't see it if you if you don't have, if you're not very clear about certain fundamentals. And one of them is, especially as a startup, is what's the gap in the market right now that you're coming in to fill? Like, what there, there's a market, there you their customers or users, they currently can't do something or can't do something efficiently, and you're coming along saying, here's a better way to do it, or here's a new opportunity that I'm going to give to them. And once that's very clear, then everything works. You can work backward from there. That's why I was starting with the example of a customer and saying, you know, you're saying I have certain goals of a customer, but like not all customers are equal. In fact, during recession, it's a great time to get rid of, like a lot of companies get rid of customers where there's not a good value in the relationship. It's not a healthy relationship uh, because it's too high a cost to acquire and, and too low profit. And so it's not sustainable for either party. Um, but it's hard to say what that is if you don't know for on whose behalf in the market you're solving a problem. Yeah, and, and I'll answer directly your question also, just piggybacking on what Jonathan just ended, which is that I think, yes, unequivocally. So our professional opinion, at least, is the customers should be able to set the goals. But I would caveat that because Jonathan went on it toward the end. You have to pick the customers you want. You have to pick the relationship that you want. But a business relationship with your customer base has to be based on reciprocity. And if you feel like you have the right customers for the most part, or you kind of have the part of the market that you want to have a relationship with, then they should be able to almost set your goals one-to-one and they should be aligned. Because the farther that you are divorced from their interests and the goals that they want to achieve, the more likely your company is just going to drift into a place where they have no interface in which to give you the energy that you want from them. Because no matter what you want to say about the company you're in, they're supplying the money, they supply the revenue, they supply all the energy that drives your company forward. So at any point, you know, without a conversation interface with them, it doesn't have to be direct. It doesn't have to be them. That's a little like extreme to say they're actually setting the company's goals. But I think, you know, I'm trying to illustrate the point that without that even thinking from their perspective, it's very easy, especially in tough times to drift away from where you started or start to put things in place that are just to upright the ship or to fortify or to have like an investment plan, like an investor facing plan or, you know, your own metrics plan. And that ends up just becoming like building a, a you know, a, a castle or building a sandcastle with your hands, right? You can do it for a while, but the farther you drift away from the conversation with the customer, the less likely the, the model is to be sustainable over time. And it's one of the biggest risks that we see, especially with younger businesses that find initial success, because that initial success can be intoxicating where you feel like you're holding the reins but the market that you have a relationship with is always holding the reins of your company's success, uh, make or you know, fail or succeed. Yeah, no, those are really, really good points. And, and when you look at it as if, it, if you pose it as a market-centric problem or a customer-centric problem, again, like that's when you could see opportunities. So if the problem is, that there's an asset class that isn't available to people or should be available to people, then you could start thinking beyond, I mean, I'm not saying you should, but like, let's say it's not just wine and spirits, like maybe it's any rare uh, um, collectible item. You know, you had mentioned like uh, like cards or trading cards or something. And I'm not saying that that's the direction to go, but like you, you could start thinking about the problem more holistically as opposed to in terms of, getting lost in your objectives. But the yeah. more it's associated with the market, the more you could pivot and be agile to the market and not necessarily see something as a problem. So let's say it turns out that there's a problem with the, you know, a season of wine, you know, it's, it's in a region that was very important to, you know, to your um, holdings. Um, it, 
it's not as dramatic if your model is really about you know uh, taking product that that appreciates in value as an example so so i'm not suggesting you change anything about what you're doing this you you have to have a scope that makes sense but i'm just saying that again it's really important to have that connection to the market and the second we hear something like my objectives are x and it's and it's something that you've developed external from that market then it's you know you really could be putting yourself in a position where you could quote unquote succeed in hitting your objectives even but not necessarily get what you know you're hoping to get out of it yeah and sorry to keep hitting you with double points but i think i just want to give an example to tie that together because that's why we come back to this fear concept or fear of the recession if your mission was very succinct in terms of we want to create new accessibility to this asset class or we want to have help people become more financially successful using this asset in these ways the volume of revenue growth or the customer acquisition rates those don't really play into the success really of that mission in some ways they don't have to they can but they don't have to and when you think about a recession coming and you're in a place where okay all of your your expected revenue or your investment numbers would be expected to go down especially in the category you're in or just overall perhaps in like more risky or alternative investments there'd be no reason to fear that if you know your mission wasn't aligned around metrics that were tied directly to the marketplace and i think even in generally for companies i, I think it's good to reflect on that because everyone wants good financial outcomes whether they're in a recession or not everyone wants more accessibility the recession doesn't impact these dimensions really um, unless it, it gets to the point where it's impacting your ability to to function because you don't have enough revenue to live or something like that and then you know there's practical considerations but but hopefully that helps kind of wrap together what jonathan was trying to to say also yeah no that um that makes a ton of sense it makes a ton of sense and like one thing that we use internally um which is how we we have like this uh, sort of like cascading series of documents um, that uh, when we think about us setting goals, um, we try and relate it to the um, thing at the top, which is a vision traction organizer where we lay out the problem, um, you know, the, the mission um, of that VTO. We have our um, one year plan. And then uh, we have our OKRs that sort of feed up to that. So we think about each one feeding up to the, um, preceding document. That's our attempt to do so. Um, certainly think we can always improve. Um, and those, I mean, that, that's, those are fundamental and they're, you know, we're not suggesting not to not do that. It's just a matter of how would you know when an OKR is movable or not, or when it's, you know, when something has changed in the market or external forces have changed and maybe have made it irrelevant or, you know, very relevant or, or something like that. So you just, you know, those are the North Stars. It's, it, it, you had asked, you know, originally like how to prepare for an economic downturn. And the reality is a lot of the advice that comes on preparing for an economic downturn are like, be agile, be more agile. Like, you know, like suddenly you're going to transform into agile or improve your uh, inventory management. It's like, well, that that's a hard problem. Like, in other words, like they they compound the crisis of an economic downturn by giving harder things to do that weren't able to be done when it wasn't an economic downturn, or increase your cash reserves, or things like that. So, 
I, I think the tendency is that uh, it then generates a lot of additional activity and a lot of additional objectives because people feel like they need to do something, you know, in, in response. And our advice is always going to be to actually, you know, focus more on your operations and make sure you understand what the operations are, you know, what your object, you know, what, 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 what problem you're solving, like, you know, focus on the fundamentals and double down on those because the opportunities, and then I'll give you an example, like in your industry, there's a lot of compliance. So is the, you know, sometimes during recessions, uh, compliance bodies are more, um, uh, more acquiescent to concessions or the like, uh, you know, so like, are there opportunities in that area? Um, as an example, is there an opportunity in terms of uh, thinning out the herd and competition or things like this, but like, what, what areas of compliance matter or what your competition is or anything like that, like these tactical considerations, again, much harder if it's not 100% clear what your purpose is and, you know, what, the, what, what, what you're trying to do for the, you know, for the market. Yeah. yeah. I'll add at a higher level when the preparing comment, because I guess that is the wrapping up the whole question you asked, what do we do to prepare? You know, it's always everything in a business is going to be if you stand, spend a lot of time thinking about what can I do about the things, I could replace recession for anything that you can't control and you can't predict uh, as far as external market forces. And the answer to a certain extent is you do nothing about it because it's just wasting your time. Now, that doesn't mean that the recession here is not eminent, like imminent, and there's not like signs that the risk is actually going to happen. Like it'd be silly not to uh, act on risk that is like 90%, you know, likely to manifest itself that would just but that's present now and that's why though the 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 idea is there's nothing to do to prepare for the recession if the recession is referring to this abstract concept of the entire market going through changes you can't possibly comprehend because that's an every that's an ever-present uh, existential crisis um, the biggest thing is to really focus inwardly and that's sort of that mindful and presence based business approach was to say who are my customers now what do they need now? You know, what, what can I do to continue to strengthen the mission in which the, the business was founded? And that's the real fortification. It's not holding up your walls for some storm that may or may not come or may affect your customer base one way or another. That's just going to drive you crazy. Um, so I guess the, the prevailing practical advice, which may not be the one you were looking for, was I wouldn't spend as much time worrying about it as much as clarifying uh, what you're good at and how you continue to, to strengthen uh, that process over time. And I, I think you, you're you're exactly right on like if you tried to prepare for every external um, risk, like we're gonna spend the next ten years preparing and not actually get anything done because um, they we could list those off um, all day. Um, so I think that that's a that's a very very good point, and um, I've I've become. <laughs> I, I say we're like pretty reactive with most things, but like the, uh, my, my like need for like preparation and planning has actually gone down quite a bit since starting a startup. Cause realized like, <laughs> yeah, like I, and I, I read this interesting paper about like causal reasoning versus a factual reasoning. And, you know, it, there's just so many factors that it's so, hard to plan for and yes i i do sometimes find the um the act of setting a plan um to be useful but like it's so hard to stick to and 
you know, there's always going to be things that are changing in this um, equation that it has many, many variables. So um, you're never going to get them all right. And um, you can spend all day preparing, but at some point you just have to go out and continue to execute. Yeah, for sure. And that's a wiser words couldn't be spoken. So as we get uh, closer to the end of our session, how are you feeling overall, Nick? Do you have any last minute questions or comments for us? Um, no, that felt like a, a good place for us to, you know, leave it. Like, um, it, I, I think it has been a really, really good conversation and I appreciate you all pushing on things because that's where, um, you know, it, insights are drawn. Well, we definitely agree. Thanks for coming on the show. We really enjoyed having you and it was a great conversation for us too. So I guess with that, I will say thanks again. And thanks for everyone listening. Again, we'd love to have you hear from you. So if you have any comments or you want to come join us on Business Therapy, please let us know. Otherwise, we'll talk to you next week.